Well, good morning, friends. I imagine I am a strange face uh, to many of you, but I must confess that it is a pleasure to finally gather with you and worship. This is a day that I've long expected because we have a lot of mutual friends in common. In fact, uh, Eric Huber, my mentor, was mentored by uh, none other than uh, David Coffin here, and uh, Fred Putnam has been a friend through that connection for uh, many years. Fred, you have the best friends, I think, uh, and so it is glad, uh, it is with gladness uh, that I gather with uh, you all as we consider uh, the word together. A brief word of introduction before we get to Matthew chapter uh, 6. You can be flipping there now, but uh, in the back of your heads, perhaps have this story of Abraham, a wonderful privilege that Abraham gets to come before the divine council. I mean, this is an amazing gift. There's really no other passage like this in scripture. It's incited the uh, imaginations of women and men before us, uh, reflecting on how this might come to be, what's going on here with Abraham before God and this angelic host, small angelic host, but an angelic host nonetheless. What a great privilege to be included in the divine council, to be gathered together with God and his hosts and to consider together what is to be done next. Maybe you've wanted a similar privilege, maybe by some difficult providence, some hard thing that's affecting you and your life, some issue that you feel God does not see and you wonder, if only I had that privilege of gathering with the hosts and being a member of the divine council, of consulting with God about what is to come to be here then for us. And as a way of introducing Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, our text for this morning, here before us is a terrifying, humbling, and sobering truth. You are. You are a part of the divine council. Jesus invites you to involve yourself with the things of God. That's what prayer is. Listen to our text as Jesus calls us to think weighty thoughts about prayer. I'll give us a little bit of a running start and begin in 6-5 of the book of Matthew. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the way it challenges us to think about prayer. We thank you for the simple teaching that your son provides to us, that he gives us not a prayer of many words, not a prayer of complex form, but a simple prayer that we might use to not only instruct us in prayer, but to be a model for prayer. We thank you for these words. We pray that you will use them to encourage us, to motivate us, and to seek your will in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. It is a sobering passage. It is a passage we're all familiar with. And like passages that we're familiar with, it's kind of like an old heirloom in the house, right? You know it, you love it, and yet for most of the day, for most of the weeks, months, years, decades, it's kind of on the shelf somewhere. You've maybe even forgotten where it is. Uh, only on occasion do you pull it out and, and inspect it and actually see its beauty for what it is. The Lord's Prayer is like that. We say it maybe weekly, um, hopefully not rotely, but we have that temptation of missing what's interesting, what's glorious, what's surprising, what's mysterious about this prayer. And this morning, I'd like to reflect with you about some of those surprises, some of those mysteries. In fact, if you'll note uh, from the beginning, this whole discussion by Jesus, and this is more the case in Luke than in Matthew, but in both this discussion by Jesus about the Lord's Prayer gets started. It gets going because the disciples have a question about prayer. How then shall we pray? And even in that little question, we have a couple of hidden assumptions that we might not immediately think about. That, that little question demonstrates for us the problem of prayer. I mean, one of the assumptions that's going on in the disciples' mind approaching Jesus why, how then should we pray? One of the assumptions is, of course, is that Jesus should be an expert in this. He is, after all, a rabbi. He is a teacher. And this is something that rabbis do. They teach you how to live life. They answer your problematic questions. They address which college you should go to and what you should do after college. They help you with all those things. But one of the main things that they do is instruct you in spiritual matters like prayer. Jesus, he is the good Teacher, It is understandable for the disciples, just because he's the good teacher, to want to come to him and learn about prayer. Of course, we know he is also the divine son. And in matters approaching the heavenly father, he is also an expert because of his person in prayer. We'll reflect on that in a moment. But the other assumption that's going in the disciples' mind is this, and I think it is one that we can all resonate with, it is that prayer is hard. It doesn't come naturally, at least it hasn't for me. Yes, the cries of babes and infants 
please our Lord. But it is also true that we grow in our ability to pray. We grow in our maturity in expressing ourselves before our Heavenly Father. That has to be learned and matured in and taught to us because it's hard. It's challenging. I mean, all the challenges that we face in prayer. Maybe you don't feel like you have enough time. We live in D.C. Of course you don't have time to pray. You're always on the road. You're always doing something. You're always, commu- you're always getting on the next item on the task list. It's done. Don't have time. We don't know what to pray about. Have you ever experienced that, that moment where you do have time and you do know what to pray about and you get down on your knees and you think, I'm going to pray now, and all you can feel is guilt? for whatever sin has plagued your life, for the failure of prayer in your past, for the absence of spiritual feeling. We have all these problems in prayer, but I'd like to submit to you that one of the biggest problems that we have in prayer, one of the things that blocks us from prayer, one of the frequent issues that keeps us from praying more often and more maturely than we should is the fact that we don't think it matters all that much. That it doesn't really change anything. I suspect in this room, in fact, where uh, many of us are Presbyterians and Reformed and we love the Westminster Confession as I do, you have an additional kind of theological thing in your head, which is that prayer can't change things because prayer doesn't change things because everything was decided before I was even born, because God is sovereign in his throne. And so prayer doesn't really matter. When we think about it, if we thought that prayer did matter, if we thought that it was consequential, wouldn't we pray more? If we thought it actually changed things, that it directed the course of human events, that It mattered for us and for God. Wouldn't we be more often in prayer? Well, at the heart, in fact, the the thing around which Jesus' prayer is in orbit is this proposition. Prayer does matter. Prayer is consequential. In fact, in prayer, we are invited into the very throne room of God and asked to deal with, in our own lives, thoughts, and minds, God's very own affairs. I'd like to explore that idea together this morning to see the consequential character of prayer. We're going to look at three things. We're going to, first, we're going to look at for whom do we pray. Second, we are going to look at what do we pray for, for what do we pray. And finally, thirdly, how do we pray? First then, for whom do we pray? And you can see this actually in the, the two-part structure of the Lord's Prayer. It's well recognized that the Lord's Prayer kind of divides in half. Uh, right about verse 11, you'll see the author kind of take a left turn. Jesus takes a left turn and starts praying, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our days, forgive as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation. Those are all, by the way, second person plurals. We're pray for the body. These are horizontal prayers. We're to pray for those around us. We are to pray with and for our neighbors. That's a whole nother sermon. And so we'll put it to the side and we'll see if I get invited back. 
For now, we're going to look at the first part of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're invited by Jesus to pray horizontally for, with and for others. But Jesus begins, as the Ten Commandments begins, not with matters horizontal, but with matters vertical. We are to pray that God's name would be hallowed. That is a striking proposition. That is a striking petition. It's striking because Jesus tells us that we should have the audacity to pray about God's name, to pray about God, to, to meddle in God's own affairs. That is to say, we not only pray with and for others, we are supposed to pray for God. In fact, that is the foundation of prayer. Here's how one uh, ancient, dead, reformed pastor puts it. It's, uh, this is uh, Herman Vitzius says this in his commentary on the Lord's Prayer. And I know it's a reformed, uh, a dead reformer, but stay with me. It's, this is a, a, a remarkable quote. Uh, it is very extraordinary and almost incredible familiarity of intercourse, intercourse, which a man is permitted to maintain with God and holy prayer. To be conducted to the throne of grace by the only begotten Son of God is a privilege higher still. But the most wonderful privilege of all, the one which most exceeds belief, is that a man should be allowed to plead not only for himself and for his neighbor, but for God. That the kingdom of God and the glory of God should be the subject of his prayer, as if God were unwilling to be glorious or to exercise dominion except in answer to the prayers of believers. This is the glorious, surprising point presupposed throughout the Lord's Prayer. That God has ordained the world in such a way as to permit you to be a part of his divine counsel. To permit you to be a participant in the magnification of his glory, that he would permit us to be consequentially effective in the bringing about his kingdom in this world and the next. Your prayers matter because God says they matter. Your prayers are consequential because God gives them consequence. Prayers, in other words, like every other aspect of our life, prayer is incumbent upon that first uh, catechism question that what is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What is the chief end of our being? It is to bring glory to God and it is God centered in all of its work and in all of its ethos. We, in our prayer, are no less God centered than in every other aspect of life. We have the honor of praying for God. We have the honor of praying for God's glory, his name, his kingdom, his will. 
We pray for God. We are to be God-centered. And God values us. He He has ascribed value to us in such a way that our prayers are meaningfully a part of his divine purposes and plan. Prayer is consequential even, and we might even say especially, prayer for God. Okay, so we pray for God. We have been given this privilege of praying for God, his name, his will, his kingdom. So what are we to pray for? When somebody comes up to you and they say, you say, I'll pray for you. And they say, okay, well, can you pray for these things? I need a bike. Uh, and I need to lose weight. And I need my friend to, to find Jesus. You know, I need, those are the things that you should pray for. Bike first. Then weight loss. Then friend, right? In that order. So you know, we pray for these things. So we are to pray for God. What does God want us to pray for? And of course, Jesus answers that question. He gives us these first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer are all this vertical, what we are to pray for. We are to involve ourselves in the kingdom and the glory and the will of God. These are the things for which we pray. And he moves in order. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. The hallowing of God's name, the coming of his kingdom, and the accomplishment of his will in heaven, in earth as in heaven. Each of, these, each of these are profoundly important and they're a little bit different from one another, but embedded in all of them is a bit of a mystery, a bit of a riddle worth puzzling out. Um, you can see it in the first one, hallowed be your name. One of the riddles actually in hallowed be your name is, what does the word hallowed mean? We don't really use that word often anymore. It's an outdated word. It's one of those Words that shows up in your translation because this is how you memorized it, not because this is a normal word that you use uh, in life. Although if you are a fan of Halloween, uh, we have that word hallow embedded in the word Halloween. Uh, And if you're, dare I say, a fan of Harry Potter, you uh, know that the seventh book is the Deathly Hallows. And in both of those usages, they derive from that that idea of uh, sainted or sanctified or holy in some way. So we are uh, called here in the first petition to pray that God's name be holified, be sanctified, be set apart as holy, honored, glorious. So here's the mystery. How can God be more hallowed than he already is? How can he be more holy that he already is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's thrice holy. And you've probably heard that the reason he's thrice holy is because he can't be more holy than he already is. This is the classic full bucket problem. God is full of holiness. He can't be more holy. It's like praying. Praying this petition is like praying that God make water wet. It is wet. I used that example on my congregation and found out after the sermon that we had a congregation full of chemists who insisted to me that actually you can make water more wet. So I apologize to you chemists. I know that that analogy doesn't work, but you get the point. It's, if God is full of holiness, if he is holy, how can he be more holy than he already is? The answer to this little uh, riddle is, of course, to reflect on the fact that God's holiness 
is displayed in creation. And as it's displayed in creation, it is displayed always in reflected form. Actually, uh, Dave Coffin got at this in his initial prayer. He, He said that we are, we don't add to God's holiness. We don't supplement God's holiness as if God's half a bucket and then he creates to get that other half full. We don't supplement God's glory. Rather, what we do is reflect it. We reflect it in the, it is reflected in the world. It's reflected through created things and particularly through the ambassador that God has set into creation, the the pinnacle of his creation, his very image bearer, humanity. We were created to cultivate, grow, reflect the holiness of God as it is reflected in us and in his world. God cannot be more holy, but he can be more hallowed. He cannot be more glorious, but he can be more glorified. And so part of our prayer is to see God's glory increase upon the earth, not only as we pray about it, but as we enact it, as we reflect who he is through his son, Jesus Christ. Speaking of whom, isn't this precisely the prayer that Jesus prayed at his transfiguration? Lord, glorify your name. Not glorify my name. Glorify your name. And how does God respond? How does the Father respond? He says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. That's how we got God to answer our, that's what we want to pray and that's how we want God to answer our prayers. Lord, glorify your name. In this circumstance, glorify your name. In that issue, glorify your, all our prayers should be centered on the glory of God. This is precisely why not every prayer should be a give me a new bike prayer, but some of them should be. Because bikes give glory to God. Why do bikes give glory to God? Because they're a way we enjoy his creation and the wind flows in our hair. We feel his pleasure as we ride. And when we do, we are to give him thanks for the good gift that he has provided for us. Fathers, mothers, when you give your kid a bike and they love it, and then they love you more because they have it, isn't that glorious? So we can pray for new bikes, but we can also we also pray them as a in, in a manner that protects, extends, and cultivates the glory of God. Thy kingdom come. Same problem. Will not God's kingdom come regardless of my prayers? Are my prayers consequential in God bringing about His kingdom? Well, of course. God can raise up children of Abraham by stones, by causing dead bones to come to life. God doesn't need your prayers to accomplish his will. He doesn't need your prayer to reach your neighbor. Just like he doesn't need the foolishness of preaching to gather a flock and to disciple a people for himself. He doesn't need it, but in the economy of salvation, in the way he's decided to bring about his plans, he has made us 
consequential participants in his great work. He has decided to use us. He has decided to bless the foolishness of preaching. He has decided to consult your prayers. He has decided to use you and to use others around you to reach your neighbor. And so he has decided to make our prayers consequential, to give our prayers weight in his providence. And so our prayers are a way in which he extends his kingdom. It's as we pray for neighbors to come to Christ, as we pray thy kingdom come, as we long for and hope for that kingdom to come. And one of the best ways that you can cultivate a desire for heavenly things, put your mind on things above, right? What does that mean? Is that, is that like some sort of zen that I'm supposed to reach, some sort of peaceful state? What does it mean to put my mind on things above? It means to put your mind on God's kingdom. And one of the best ways to put your mind on God's kingdom is to pray like the martyrs pray in the book of Revelation, to long for it. Lord, come quickly. To long for justice to be done, to long for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, to long for the new heavens and the new earth because they are better than seeing my 401k grow. The new heavens and the new earth are better than seeing my children flourish. Those are all good things. But the kingdom of heaven is better than a bicycle. It's better than passing my test. It's better than healing. It is the restoration of all things, the perfecting of all things. And so even as I pray for these earthly things, I set my mind on things above, on the kingdom and the betterness. And I long for it as the martyrs long for it. And it may be that God says to me, yet a little while longer. And I say back to God, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But we pray for, we long for God's kingdom. And finally then, thy will be done. Same riddle. Will not God's will be done regardless of my prayer? I was uh, browsing the socials. I shouldn't browse the socials before preaching. I was browsing the socials yesterday. I should give myself a week of, uh, before preaching of not doing that. But I, I, I saw on my feed one of uh, uh, a comment from, uh, from somebody uh, about the recent General Assembly. Why do Presbyterians even gather for General Assembly? Why do Calvinists gather for General Assembly? Why do they vote? Because Calvinists don't believe in contingencies. Right? You don't believe in contingencies because God has planned everything that has come to pass. Why do I pray that his will be done? His will cannot but be done. Sisters, brothers, that's not what Calvinists believe. Calvinists believe in contingencies. They believe that God has ordained everything that has come to pass, but they believe that he has done so in a way that incorporates our free actions, our behavior, which we are not compulsed. We're not puppets. We're not pulled along by strings. We're not fatalists. God doesn't play with us as the fates played with the Greeks, things don't just happen because they were ordained to happen. They happen because God has planned things in such a way as to, according to the confessional, our confessional standards, establish 
secondary causes or consequences. Our prayers are consequential. We are God's means to his perfect, holy end. And so we are to pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't this precisely what Jesus prays as he goes to the cross? He's given a foretaste in the transfiguration of the joy set before him, a foretaste of glory that is to come. And then Gethsemane. And he has a choice. Does he submit to the will of God? Does he descend into Jerusalem? Descend onto a cross? Descend into hell? Or does he find another way? And what does he pray? He prays, Lord, if there is any way that this cup may be taken from me, but not, not my will, your will be done. It's not Jesus play acting. It's not Jesus pretending to be human. It is Jesus being human as a model for how we should pray. We should pray that we and those around us seek to obey the revealed will of our Heavenly Father. He's told us what we need to know. He's told us. He's opened the scroll and showed us how these things will end. He's told us in stone how we are to uh, live our lives before him. And we are to pray that we and those around us conform our own lives to the very will of God. That it, it might be so now as it will be perfectly in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. And God hasn't told us everything. He hasn't told us whether we'd get that new bike. He hasn't told us whether he would heal our friend, our family member, our neighbor. He hasn't told us how all these things will come about. And when his, reveal, when his will remains secret, we are to pray, not my will, but your will be done. Knowing that it is for the joy set before us that we endure even these things. This is what we are to pray for. We're to pray for God and we're to pray specifically for the honoring, the hallowing, the glorifying of his name, the coming of his kingdom, and the accomplishment of his will. How do you cultivate that kind of prayer? I'd like to conclude by three reflections. Jesus' expectations of us In praying for God and praying specifically these things for God, Jesus' expectations of us are to pray frequently, reverently, and expectantly. We're to pray frequently, reverently, and expectantly. Frequently, I think one of the reasons why Jesus gave us a short prayer is so that we would pray more often. Big, long prayers take a big, long time. Nothing against long prayers, but the model prayer that Jesus gives us is a short prayer. And the reason he gives us a short prayer is that we can use this not only in, in short time, in times where we don't have much time, but we can use it in times where long prayers are more required. This is a model prayer, and, and, and we're told to uh, hallow the name of God. And that means 
thinking about all the ways in which, in my life, God's name needs to be more glorified. That could be a long prayer. That's probably a longer prayer than we realize that it should be. But I can also pray it much more simply, much more concretely, and at any time and in any place. Your prayers are consequential. And big, wordy, decorated, ornamental prayers are not necessary to please your Heavenly Father. So pray more. Pray more frequently. Make it a habit of your life. Secondly, we are to pray reverently. We have been given the privilege of entering into the divine council. We have been the privilege of approaching the divine throne, of drawing near to our Heavenly Savior to drawing near to the mercy seat of God. Don't treat that privilege with contempt. It is a privilege. We have the audacity, as as Witsius puts it, we we have been given the privilege of having the audacity to come and uh, uh, intrude ourselves into the affairs of God. But we have been invited to do so by our Heavenly Father. And before our Father, we are reverent. Hebrews 2, Jesus, with loud tears and lamentations, and I can't read that passage without thinking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who bled tears, uh, whose, whose tears were blood. I can't help but thinking of Jesus crying out to his Father at that time. And Hebrews tells us he was heard because he was reverent. We approach our God, and we bring to him our requests, our lamentations, our complaints, our gripes, our loves, our desires. All of these things we bring to God, and we do so transparently. We do so authentically. He does not disdain the inner thoughts of our heart. He doesn't just tolerate our presence. He delights in our presence. He wants us to come forward. And yet, we cultivate an attitude of reverence. Far be it from me, Lord, as Abraham says. But if there were but five less. And finally, we pray expectantly. We pray in expectation that God, as he has promised, will give good gifts to his children. We pray knowing that if it not be the will of God, his will, not my will, We pray knowing that we might not get the things that are the desires of our heart, but we pray knowing that our prayers will be answered, knowing that they will turn for our good and his glory. Abraham prays knowing that his prayer will be answered. You notice that actually God goes in Abraham's prayer. God states he's going to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham intercedes. God still destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Abraham didn't get low enough. <laughs> His math was a bit, uh, a bit presumptuous, right? Uh, so, so God, in the end, does accomplish his will, but he does something that Abraham doesn't ask for. He takes out Lot and his family. He redeems Lot. Abraham doesn't ask for that by name. He doesn't ask for Lot. But but God, in his justice, takes Lot out. And Abraham, though never having asked it, should see that as an answer to his prayer. 
Some of you keep prayer journals. I know some of you probably, uh, you know, you, you have ways of reflecting on how God has answered your prayers. Find ways to remind yourself of the goodness of God. To remember that he does look upon our suffering and consider it in the divine counsel. And that our prayers are therefore consequential. We may not get exactly what we want, but God hears, he listens, and he answers the prayer of his faithful servants. Pray more, pray with reverence, and pray in expectation that the one who keeps faith, that the faithful one, will hear and respond to your prayers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us. We thank you that though we are weak, wandering sheep, unloving and unlovable, that you have not only loved us and forgiven us and shown us mercy, you have called us to draw near to the throne of grace and to receive help from our heavenly high priest. And by and through his name, the name of the Son, the name of the one who has prayed to his heavenly Father from his birth. We pray that in that name we would approach you as sons, adopted, sanctified, glorified in that name, and that you would hear our prayers. We pray this in his name. Amen.